Well, I'm sure you'll be thrilled to know that I have about 45 minutes of sermon here. So I'll be cutting it down a lot as I go along. I wanted to tell you a couple of stories, family stories. One of the stories is about my family of origin. Today is my brother's birthday. He's turning 64. He's much younger than I am. He's lived in Asheville, North Carolina for about 25 years, but he's on the road a lot around this country as a customer relations specialist for a very cosmopolitan software clientele. They're golf clubs and country clubs. I think he's been successful in his job because he's very personable. He reads widely and has a worldview that I think is very advantageous because it's very similar to mine. At least he makes me believe that he's similar to me. I've relied on him during several personal crises, and he has relied on me as well. I think we trust each other implicitly. My other sibling, our sister, lives near Atlanta, where we were born. She lives within 10 miles of the place we were born, and she's always lived there. This, uh, In five weeks, she will celebrate her own birthday. So the two of them are what used to be called Irish twins, less than 11 months apart. They've always had a different kind of bond of mutual empathy and understanding, much like twins, I think. They were real playmates as toddlers, and even now they share an active and energetic lifestyle preference for outdoor activities and athletic pursuits that I am not engaging in. They've been known to ride 40 miles in a couple of hours on their bicycles, for example, or canoe down raging rivers together. She, they're very impressive. My sister makes the effort to stay connected with me and my family, although she and I have what I would call divergent views about economics, about politics, and about religion. She and her family are, to put it briefly, fundamentalist Christians. She persistently tried to convert Nina and me to her religious perspectives for over 20 years. As we were adults, I used to drive her to her Sunday school classes, so it's partly my fault. But she finally gave up uh, after I was ordained as a Unitarian minister. Finally. She gave up and seemed to understand that further evangelical efforts to save us were bound to be ineffectual. But she's still pretty convinced that I might be destined to go to hell. But she, doesn't, she knows now that it's not her fault. She gave it her best effort. Now, my brother and I don't talk much about our sister's religious identity. We know that she's a lot like many of the people we grew up with and went to high school with. But we are both very impressed by the depth of her real commitment to action, not just uh, platitudes. Since her husband died about six years ago from a degenerative neurological disorder before his 60th birthday, she's been involved with many two-week-long mission trips, both in the United States and also to at least a dozen foreign countries in Eastern Europe, in Africa, in South America, Central America, and Mexico, most recently to help refugees in Greece. And next month, she'll be going, I think it's to Armenia. In following my sister's many trips, I've discovered that there's a whole missionary travel industry built around the idea of sending American Christians and their personal money to notice and make at least some effort toward addressing persistent problems of poverty, deficient inf infrastructure, 
disease, human trafficking and exploitation, economic stratification, and inadequate nutrition, housing, and education. In her mission trips, they spend time with those people on the ground doing the work they can do in a week or two. But although well-intentioned, we could say that many missionaries to and from the American continents do not recognize that they are part of a pattern of at least 500 years, over 25 generations of whiter people going to places where darker people live with at least the overt expressed intention to convince those folks that they need to change how they live and what they believe in and offering them incentives to change. In that vein, some of us perhaps have seen or read about the play called The Book of Mormon. Those irreverent and largely profane portrayals of that group of Mormon missionaries in a remote African village is often hysterically funny, but it's also somewhat sickening to those of us who have some elements of cultural sensitivity in ourselves. But what my brother and I see in our sister's action and infer as her motivation is something which transcends her religious fervor, her conviction that the words of Jesus are not just empty words. Those words of help the poor, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, defend those who are persecuted. But the response to the Christian Testament's imperative is not risky for my sister. For most purposes, as a relatively young widow, now she is retired from the world of paid employment because she has financial means and because she also feels a higher calling. She has the benefit of a stable family and a network of trusted friends who have known her for decades since she's always lived and attended churches, schools, college, and even graduate school within a 20-mile radius of the place she was born. But she's also adventurous, and she's curious about other people, and she's concerned about the citizens of the world. My brother and I admire our sister's dedication, and we now understand that the volunteer work she has been doing, both from her home and on her mission trips, is very important for her sense of making meaning of her life. So that's my first story. But now there's the second story, the family story of Martha and Wait Still Sharp. You may have seen the little brief note in the church email this week about the Ken Burns documentary, which will be broadcast on PBS this Tuesday night at, eight, at 9 o'clock. It's called Defying the Nazis, the Sharps' War. It was put together by their grandson, Artemis Javkowski, from his personal conversations with his grandparents and his research into the souvenirs and documents he found in their keepsakes from their work in Europe with what became the Unitarian Service Committee and their work during the war and after the war with other organizations addressing the plight of refugees after World War II. Yesterday, uh, a blog I subscribed to, written by Nicholas Kristof, who is a columnist for the New York Times, focused on the plight of the refugees through his understanding and his, his uh, preview of that documentary. He wrote, in, and it's published in today's New York Times in a different form, he wrote these words, 
When representatives from the United States and other countries gathered in Avion, France in 1938 to discuss the Jewish refugee crisis caused by the Nazis, they exuded sympathy for Jews and excuses about why they couldn't admit them into their own countries. Unto the breach stepped the 33-year-old woman from Massachusetts named Martha Sharp and her husband, Wait Still who was the minister of the Wellesley Unitarian Church. With steely nerve, she and her husband led one anti-Nazi journalist through police checkpoints in Nazi-occupied Prague to safety by pretending that that journalist was her husband. Another time, she smuggled prominent Jewish opponents of Nazis, including a leading surgeon and two journalists by train through Germany by pretending that they were her maid and and, uh, butler. If the Gestapo should charge us with assisting the refugees to escape, prison would be a light sentence, she later wrote in her memoir. Torture and death were the usual punishments. Sharp was in Europe because the Unitarian Association had asked her and her husband if they would assist Jewish refugees. Seventeen other couples had refused the mission, but the Sharps agreed when they were called one winter night in 1939. And they received the support and training and briefing and left their children, who were then ages two and seven, in the care of uh, relatives and friends in Wellesley. Their story is told in a timely and powerful New Ken Burns documentary, Defying the Nazis, The Sharps' War. This documentary will air on Tuesday evening at 9 o'clock, as I said, just as the world leaders are concluding two days of meetings in New York City about today's global refugee crisis, which is only an echo of the one in the 1930s. Artemis Jovkowski, their grandson, sat with me at dinner at General Assembly and regaled me with some of the stories that he had heard from his grandparents and about his grandparents, and the struggle that he had uh, undertaken to raise the money and do the work that was necessary to produce this documentary. So I have this sort of personal connection now through the Unitarian Service Committee and through my own reading of the book that they put together, which will be available for loan in the con- to this congregation. I purchased it a couple of weeks ago when it was first came out on September 6th. There, the vitriol in public speech, the xenophobia, and that is, that is a real word, xenophobia, that uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem to know the definition of. The accusing of Muslims of all of our problems, these are similar to the anti-Semitism of the 1930s and 40s. The Sharp story is a reminder that in the last great refugee, refugee crisis, Our United States denied visas to most Jews because our countrymen and our leadership feared the economic burden and worried that the ranks of those refugees might include spies. It was the Nazis who committed genocide, but it was this country and other countries which also bear moral responsibility for refusing to help these desperate people. Perhaps that's a thought, Nicholas Kristof says, that world world leaders should reflect on as they gather now in New York to 
discuss the refugee crisis of our time. And perhaps they might find inspiration from those like the Sharps who saw the humanity in those refugees and are today honored in Yad Vashem because of what they did to save those who were being persecuted by the fascists. Now, I'm noticing that we have a little bit of time left, so I will, I will go on with some theological reflections that are prompted by my reading of resources by my colleague Paul Langston Daly, who is now uh, uh, a um, minister working with the UUSC on this particular program of love-defying hate. He says, the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. In order to have hate, one must have an attachment, a connection, a reason to bring passion to the issue, whatever that issue might be. So how does it explain Islamophobia, immigrant bashing, racism, homophobia, and sexism that we know exists in our society? And of course, Paul is himself a transgender person. He was born and, and, and treated throughout most of his, his um, life before adulthood as a woman. He was named Paula. People would not be so passionate if they didn't have some investment, if they didn't care. Their hatred would be indifference. And for anyone who has felt indifference, that often stings worse than hatred. Indifference is actually like invisibility. And while in some cases that may seem desirable, in the long run it's actually worse. At least with hatred you know someone is invested. They care. And there is at least the potential that they can be moved. What is hate? What is it that makes some people so angry? And sometimes so angry they will resort to violence? Well, in psychology we know that anger often seems to be secondary emotion with reactions beneath it. Anger is sometimes a reaction to a threat of being out of control. And fear is very often at the root of that anger. Fear of other, fear of harm, fear of change, fear of difference, fear of what is unknown. Fear of mud monsters. But when fear arises, our reptilian brainstem, the amygdala, tells our bodies to move into protection mode to protect ourselves or those we love. We build a fortress of ourselves. We jump into fight, flight, or freeze as the main options that we have. But human brains are far more complex than that. When we are using all of our brains, the part up here as well as the part back there, we can use it to refine our emotions. What is it we're really responding to? Is it dislike, distaste, disgust, or hatred? Is it, where does that fear come from? What is it we're really experiencing? In order to make conscious decisions, we can use our memory, our experiences, our true knowledge of others and the world, rather than our fears about the world. And then our reason to help us in refining our emotions. We can talk with people we know and trust to help us get greater clarity. Hatred is an emotion that almost all human beings experience, and some feel it all the time because they're always angry or fearful.
It's a painful place to live, a place of distrust and disconnection. To drive out hatred, just as Martin Luther King's writings observed, only patience and love can be effective. So in the struggle for human rights, love must be at the center. If we respond to anger with anger, nothing will be resolved with our perceived adversary. We will be like two rams banging our heads together in an effort to get the other to yield, to back down. Rams have heavy, thick skulls evolved for this purpose, but humans are not designed in this way. We must seek and find other ways to connect and engage with our fellow humans, to build relationships across difference to build trust. And unfortunately, it means that we have to risk to be somewhat vulnerable, to be open to being wrong, to being reminded of our own mistakes and our own errors. Most of us, though, like Jane Goodall, thank goodness, after her lifetime of observation of primates, believe in the evolutionary processes of species. We really would like to believe that we are evolving over time. But what we are evolving into is up to us. We can continue on the track we seem to be on, where we often use fear, anger, and violence ourselves, which drives the ideas that we hold or our ways of thinking whether it be an ideology or a theology, or a political agenda, or even our own reactions. The irrational anger or fear that wells up in us can make it impossible for us to think clearly or with self-reflection. Spiritual discipline is what religions have taught for centuries as a way to help people respond to overwhelming initial first reactions of fear and anger. Spiritual practice can show us, as we watch ourselves, that it is not easy to get our emotions under control. But it also teaches us that emotions can pass if we let them. We know that we are not persuasive when we are yelling at somebody. Their defenses come up. Likewise, when we are being yelled at, we're not interested in listening. How do we be persuasive? Liberation and salvation can only come when we begin to understand that whatever fear of the other we may feel, whatever anger we may feel, can prevent us from being fully and completely engaged and free. In a spiritual sense, we can never escape shame, guilt, or fear as long as others are oppressed. And as long as our own actions, whether made in ignorance or willful ignorance, perpetuate that oppression by generating resistance and opposition. Because this is so, we can find ourselves in what Buddhism refers to as the cycle of samsara, of suffering. Another way to say it is simply to say that hurt people hurt people over and over again. Through our own fear and pain and anger, we often find ourselves lashing out, acting out, and disconnecting. I can't talk to you if you're going to believe that, if you're going to say that. 
is an, is an automatic reaction where we are conflict averse. And then others of us are drawn into the conflict and feel that we have to match the other person's emotion because that's an instinct of fear and anger. But to truly defy hate, we must have the courage to be vulnerable in body, mind, and spirit. Stepping into what we don't know with curiosity and with humility. Our colleague, Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd, who had served at the Brew Congregation and now is in Maryland, said in her sermon at General Assembly last June, we become sandpaper to one another, smoothing the rough edges if we are actually engaged with each other. To truly defy hate, we must exercise our cognitive ability to critique our own actions and the actions of the leaders that serve us. But this means that we must do self-reflection and honest critique to improve and build up all of us rather than to damage and wear down our adversaries. To defy hate, we must be willing to engage in a practice of self-discipline, training ourselves to act and not react immediately to the world around us, noticing when our temper is arising or when we're responding out of that fear and taking our deep calming breath, as Mel would say, in order to open ourselves to vulnerability and to truly listen to what is underneath the words that we hear from the person who is opposing us, who seems to be doing evil. To defy hate, we must embrace the beauty and the diversity of the world around us, the natural the world, and our fellow human beings. We must find a way to think more broadly about life beyond human life so we can embrace all life and consider the impact of our choices on future generations, not only of humans, but of all life. To defy hate, we must step into curiosity and ask ourselves, or even ask our adversaries, why do they think they think the way they do? Not as a calculation for how to insidiously change their minds, but as an opportunity to connect, to understand, to find common ground, however small that may be, to reduce fear and anxiety and anger, and to smooth each other's rough edges. To defy hatred takes courage and conviction, but if we're not committed to our convictions in word and deed, then disconnection is automatic. And with it, indifference or false equivalency. When people are discouraged and absolutely disconnected, they cannot see the gradations of good and evil of the gray zone that is actually a place of compromise. We can't afford indifference and we cannot afford moral equivalency because there, it's not true. There are things that are evil and there are things that are for the common good. But in the gray zone, we don't need to be adversarial so much. We need to find those areas where we can find agreement. As President Kennedy said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good people do nothing, become demoralized, become disconnected, become indifferent. And as Martin Luther King wrote, 
In the end, we will not remember what our enemy has said, but we will never forget the silence of our friends. We cannot afford to disconnect. We cannot afford to be found in that zone of indifference where we think it doesn't matter what we do because everything that we do can matter.